Hello and welcome to the Ramen Profitable Podcast. My name is Atish Mazumdar and I'm here with my co-pilot, the great and powerful Chris Scott. And this is the podcast about testing out your ideas, taking your first steps, and really overcoming those obstacles on the way to entrepreneurship. Enjoy. How's Hawaii? Beautiful, gorgeous. Uh, oh yeah, nice. Uh, not as much rain as everyone said it was going to be. It's a it's a great time. How was your uh, test? Did they draw blood? My COVID test. Yeah, didn't you have to get a COVID test? No, I had to, dude. Well, yes, yes, I did have to have a COVID test. Actually, this was super weird. So I bought a home COVID test. Oh, and that counts as whatever they're. Well, so it's here's what kind of lets you know that the methodology of this is little bullshit like in because first of all it has to be within 72 hours of your flight right so uh right there it's like why wouldn't it be a rapid test directly before your flight because out of most like phoenix sky harbor has rapid tests now at the airport they're 200 bucks you know they're a little expensive but like just to have that peace of mind i think that's well worth it and that would be immediately before you get on the plane so it kind of makes sense they don't accept rapid tests there. They only accept the PCR test, not the molecular or whatever. So we bought these. So then we bought these kits that are COVID tests, um, uh, uh, home COVID tests by this company called Vault, right? And essentially, you get the test, you open it up, you do it in front of a doctor on Zoom, then you immediately ship it back through uh, uh, like they, they have a pre-made shipping label and you, you ship it through the mail. They get it back and they uh, will turn it around really quickly to, to get your results. But here's the parts that get weird, like just in a general sense. Number one, it's not a nasal swab. It's a spit test. So here I am just like you and I are right now on a zoom call and I'm spitting into a tube and it's like, I can't decide which one's weirder. The person who's spitting into a tube in front of somebody on zoom or the person who's watching somebody spit into a tube on zoom. It's, it was weird. It was, it was strange. I wonder if that, if that's how they do uh, drug tests nowadays. They make you zoom while you're, while you're zoom while you're peeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely could. That'd be funny. Um, It'd be gross. but like, but then she was, she asked me, she was like, oh, is this for travel? And I said, yeah, it is actually. And she said, okay, write stat travel on the outside of your bag when you ship it back. And then they turned it around. We sent it in, uh, was yesterday Friday? No, yesterday was Saturday. We sent them in Friday at roughly noon. We got our results back yesterday, uh, like evening, give or take. So it's like, how is this not a rapid test then? Like, how, how is this any different? Well, uh, that, I do a lot of the free testing here. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a lot of saliva tests uh-huh. and you just spit through a straw into a vial and then they take it. And then yeah. the next day you have results. Oh, so really? I yeah. I don't know how testing results are processed. I, yeah, I guess I don't really know either because I remember, uh, but this was months back. It took like weeks for your, your results to get back. And right. now I guess they've innovated and they've figured out a way to test faster or something. Either way, I'm relieved because I thought, it was going to go right up until because basically what I told Tori was like, look, if we don't get our results back, 
by Monday at 6 a.m., it's like we can't go. We can't run the risk of like getting on the flight, hoping that, you know, we get our results back and then we'll be let free in Hawaii. It's like, no, 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 we can't go if that's the case. So luckily we got ours back, you know, very early. So it, it won't be a problem um, or it wasn't a problem uh, since I'm in the future. In Hawaii right now. Yeah, yeah, since I'm in Hawaii right now. Nice shirt. Nice Hawaiian shirt. Thank you. It's a legitimate Tommy Bahama. Is he from Hawaii? I don't think uh, so. I guess Bahama would not. <laughs> Anyways, um, I have another I have another issue that I wanted to bring up with you. And I want okay, your take okay. on it because, you know, I'm going to say a little upset. Uh Oh, a little upset. <laughs> have you seen the King Kong versus Godzilla trailer? I have. Is it just me or are they making Godzilla the bad guy? Well, if you read the synopsis and everything, Something is making Godzilla go haywire. Mm. Okay. And he's doing bad things because someone's manipulating Godzilla. Mm. That's what I'm gathering from all the information that's available. Okay. All right. Because I was a little fucking annoyed. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I watched the trailer and I was just like, oh, they're giving this whole storyline where King Kong has a human connection and all this kind of shit, you whatever. Uh, but then they're making Godzilla the bad guy. And it's like, well, this is fucked up. I don't like that concept at all. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't, because it's like, why would I care about any of these monsters or anything like that? But for some reason, I prefer Godzilla. I'm a Godzilla guy. Right. So uh, apparently in the original King Kong versus Godzilla, there was like no winner. They just mm. became friends at the end of it. And they, they skipped off into the sunset. For real? For real. <laughs> and uh, no, they didn't. Uh, no, I haven't seen that in forever. I don't remember if they skipped into the sunset or not, but I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. So they're saying there's a definitive winner in this movie. Mm. So I think there is another creature mm-hmm. that's going to pop up that's messing up Godzilla's. Mothra. Uh, no, Mothra's already was in the last one. What was the last one? Uh, King King of the Monsters. I didn't watch that one. That one looked like dog shit. With the uh, three-headed dragon-looking guy. <laughs> yeah, the Mothra was in that one. Mm, okay. There was like there was like seven monsters in that movie. There are a lot of monsters in that movie. Mm. Godzilla it, beat them all up. Yeah. Well, no, the the dragon guy beat them all up, and then Godzilla beat up the dragon guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what a okay. Well, uh, th- that at least is a relief because I was I was pretty annoyed, and and you know. Am I spending, am I wasting a lot of energy on a, you know, thoughts or emotions on a franchise that I don't really care that much about? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Eliminate that, Atish. Oh, yeah, that's true. I should eliminate I was, that. I was upset that the guy that's directing it, like, directed some crappy Blair Witch remake. And then he makes Godzilla versus Kong. It's like, how did that happen? A Blair Witch remake? Yeah. I guess he also did something else that was kind of cool. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um. I'm blanking on it, but I'm like, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit to me. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Now that we got the important stuff out of the way, uh, welcome back to ramen profitable. Um, we're here today. We, we last week we talked about, uh, the four hour work week. We kind of summarized it from a very kind of zoomed out perspective. And then we kind of started thinking along the lines of, you know, a, would we recommend this to new entrepreneurs now? And then really the component that stuck out of that is that the the timing is, a, is just a little different. When the book was written was quite a ways away, and it may not resonate the same with entrepreneurs, 
entrepreneurs now, there's a lot of great concepts in there. Um, but I think it was more the, the parts that were applicable still were, were the theory were like the concepts were that were the, were the idea that like, Oh, you need to define your goals in a different kind of way. You need to d- define things so that you can, f- you know, specifically just work with rule sets that get you towards what you want to do as opposed to, you know, there was, there was things like that, but in terms of app, actual application of kind of what Mr. Tim Ferriss was talking about, uh, we, we both tend to think that there's like a fair, a fair amount of modernization that, that can occur. Right. Is that fair to say? I agree with that assessment. Yeah. So there, we kind of thought that what we wanted to do was sort of walk through and, and see kind of where were the areas that, uh, we would sort of modernize or what are the kind of recommendations, uh, that we would, we would give to other people. And, you know, just off the top, did anything kind of strike you as a little dated from the four I think hour work the week? concept of new rich is extremely dated. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think this concept or this theory that we all need to strive to be a millionaire is dumb. Mm. I'm going to say it. I think it's dumb. Also, this book came out in 2007, right before the economy crash. Mm-hmm. It's like, screw those guys. Those guys ruined the economy. Yeah. <laughs> and the chances for the little guys. Yeah. Exa- well, dude, and I, boy, do I have a lot to say about that now. I'm pretty sure uh, everybody has a lot to say about that now after the weeks previous uh, with GameStop. I know. That was uh, crazy. That, well, and I lived it firsthand. Maybe we'll talk about that on a different episode. My experience with uh, buying GameStop stock and what a turbulent. You, bought, you actually bought GameStop, GameStop stock? You were, mm-hmm. on the, you were on that Reddit thread? Uh, yeah. Or someone told it. you about it. Someone told you about it. It's like, you got to buy this. You know exactly who told me. I do know exactly who Come told on. You. you know, I've got, I've got one friend and you know exactly <laughs> who he is who told me to get in on this. But, uh, I got in back when it was sub $100, uh, like it was at 90 bucks uh-huh. when I bought in. So I was actually able to, you know, diamond hands my way into some nice little profit, but we'll talk about that some other time. Talk about that later. Yeah. That's but, maybe next episode. But yeah, but I don't know. I just feel like there's definitely this, especially with an older generation, this concept of, you know, uh, hunkering down, doing the work, and then you become successful. Mm -hmm. And to be successful, you need to strive to be like a businessman, a successful businessman, Mm -hmm. a millionaire, a bajillionaire, a kajillionaire. And I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's what makes people wealthy and rich. I think what makes people wealthy and rich is, you know, having solid friendships, Eating yeah. good food, uh, being content. I feel like that. What that's what makes people rich. And I feel like this this uh, trend of uh, striving to be a millionaire is just not. Yeah, we've we've kind of had this. Uh, this was actually brought up in another great book called Late Bloomers. Um, we've kind of gotten this obsession with youth and an obsession with money. And obviously, I can see why both of those things are. Uh, things that are, you know, easily, easy to obsess over, but we've kind of made it a cultural thing. Like America is obsessed with work in a way that other countries are not like, I I don't know if it's, it's become completely unhealthy and in another kind of way. and, And I actually really like the way that you put that, that it's, it's not about, this seems more focused on the, the, the trappings of 
you know, the, the new rich, as he puts it, right? Like the extravagant vacations, the long time off, the right car. Like I think he references an Aston Martin DB9 in, in the book, which is like a $200,000 car, like completely not practical. You know, like it kind of, it's, it's like to me, we're obsessed with youth and we're obsessed with money, like making a ton of money. But those don't seem like the end goals, right? Because it's like, what does youth get me? It's like time. That's what it, all it is. And right. why do I want more time? Oh, because I want to do more things of value that I value and I want to spend it with more good people and stuff like that. So it's like, well, that's just a realignment of your priorities. That's not, you know, you don't need to be 22 again to, to no. do that, right? You don't have to look 22 to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and then the obsession with money is, is kind of like, well, money just enables me to do things and to enjoy things with, you know, whatever. So for me, it's not even about like, you know, I don't want to be a millionaire necessarily for me. It's actually, and maybe this is just my naivete. Maybe if I, uh, keep buying GameStop stock, you know, and then now I'm a millionaire, maybe I'll completely change my tune, but it's like what I really want. And what I do is like, I just want to go get some really good food with a friend and like, I'll pick up the tab and I'm not even going to think about it. Right. And that's it. It doesn't have to be anything more crazy than that. So that, that like, I appreciate the concepts of what kind of what this book is driven under, but the premise doesn't really hold true to, I don't know. And, and it's like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting soft. Maybe I'm less like profit driven than I should be, but no, that's just kind of the way I feel. Well, I, I do think that's partly because of what's happening during these times. It's like everything was taken away from us. We're stuck yeah. inside our houses. Yeah. You know, there are people that still go out, but it's a different experience. You can't, it's not like how it used to be. You can't just yeah. go to a restaurant and enjoy yourself. It's yeah. oh, at the wear of a mask. I can't be around this many people. That's actually a really fair point that I didn't think of that one of the main differences or the reason why this is just not really applicable in any or why this book seems dated is because our lives have completely changed. Right. Like, like there's, you know, there's one thing about, you know, uh, technology has made it more easy or easy to be an entrepreneur than ever before. Like that. So we are seeing entrepreneurship, like basically exponentially increase during, you know, our lifetime right now, but also the methods in which we do anything, whether it's even grocery shopping or whatever, like has completely fucking changed. Exactly. I mean, even with the concepts I feel in this book are based upon a, a business standard that was relevant two years ago. Right. And now it's irrelevant. Now yeah. anybody can do anything everywhere. And the only people fighting that change were the people in power. Yep. The bosses, the CEOs, yep. the people that, you know, apparently culture wants us to be when we grow up. Right. And so I feel like oppressing other people people to benefit you is, uh, not cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and that was, that was kind of the weird thing that, that was sort of in, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. And, and that was what was in late bloomers as well is like, basically it's, it's not only damaging for the people or like, I don't know, however you phrase it, maybe not damaging, but like not cool essentially to the people around, but also in a weird sort of sense to yourself, right? Because we've become so obsessed. We've become so obsessed with, uh, like basically if you haven't disrupted a whole industry by the time you're 22 and you don't have like, you know, 1.5 or 2 mil in the bank. Oh, you failed now somehow. Right. Right. right? And it's like, to me, that kind of is completely missing the point. Exactly. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and also 
in a weird sort of sense, and I think this is just where Tim Ferriss and I like this is this actually probably isn't a commentary on the book or this isn't something that like I would fault the book for. But I think Tim and I just have kind of different goal sets or different ideas because like one of the things that he opened up the chapters or opened up the book was was like, oh, I was a guest lecturer at Princeton and I uh, was doing the tango at a competitive level and I was a national Chinese kickboxing champion and an MTV you know, break dancer or something like that. But the way in which he did those things, like he openly admits the way that he did the, the Chinese kickboxing uh, tournament was by gaming the system. He cut a bunch of weight in a way that like you wasn't known at the time such that he could enter into a weight class, like two below his or something. And then he would just like push people out because there was a rule that if you get pushed out of the ring this many times, then it's over and it's a, you know, whatever. So he just did that. So he didn't really learn kickboxing. He just learned how to game the system, which there is practical value to, but it's like, that's just kind of different than who I am because I also don't want to do a million things, you know, kind of crappy or like enough to win or something like that. It's like, I actually weirdly am in the pursuit of becoming the best version of myself and, and I, it's just kind of a misalignment there. I kind of felt like and and gaming the system kind of lends itself to only being a quick fix, a, a, mm-hmm. a short a, sell. Yeah, very temperate. Oh words. man, he's triggering <laughs> me now. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, and it, it's it's something that people can catch on pretty quick. I'm sure if he continued doing his weight cutting, kickboxing, Chinese, whatever he was doing, they would have established some sort of rule to knock him out of those competitions or make it so he can't easily win. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm sure like society would modify itself. So, you know, people gaming the system can't because that's what they do. That's what the man does. That's what the man does. And man, that, that, uh, basically this all references GameStop (laughs) 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 because it's hard to not touch that one. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, the one thing that I do agree with, though, is that like maybe maybe it's not about being a millionaire or a, or a billionaire or something like that. It's about getting the experiences that those things can buy, essentially, or, or whatever. And I think that there's a fair amount. Of, it's it's a mixed bag, right? Because what he's specifically referring to is how you kind of game the system of a of a career, in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that that discounts that like makes it sound that it's like, well, what if I get a whole lot of value or love out of what I do? Right. Isn't that, you know, like for instance, Chris loves movies. Chris loves making movies. Like, so what are you expected to like? No, 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 no. For efficiency's sake, we're going to make that the shortest thing possible. And he's barely going to spend any time on that so that that way he can live his rich life or whatever. It's like, yeah, but doesn't his rich life include like his idealized life includes making movies? Like right. It, you know what I mean? It doesn't really quite follow like that. So I don't know. It's, it's maybe a little bit of a myopic view, but, um, so that was the that was just uh, that was a big one. That was a big one that really stuck out to me while reading yeah. the book again. It was just like this notion, or, or like how everyone like uh, idolized the last presidency, mm-hmm. and it's just because he had this appearance of a successful businessman, right? And that doesn't make you a good, yeah, at what you do. It just your appearance is what it's. It all feels like a facade, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm sure where you live, there's a lot of people that work for an appearance versus working to be happy and just content in their life. Yeah. We call them the, uh, Scottsdale $40,000 millionaires. It's like right. all these guys who are busting their humps, like at their jobs just to buy some fancy clothes or to buy a, fa- like, you know, to make their car payment or something like that. But it's like, 
to what end? Like now, because now they look like they're a millionaire, but in reality, they're they're broke. Right. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. So you're not you're not actually doing something for the propagation of you know, your own livelihood or your own success or anything like that. You're doing it completely just to build up an image or to be somebody else. It doesn't really make sense. Um, One of the things that I couldn't help thinking about was, and this is kind of more of like a tactical method, but it use, it like really uses an example of how you can uh, like how times have changed a little bit. And I'm a complete dummy. So I don't really completely understand this concept, but I think I basically get it to it to a degree um and this kind of had to do with automation and this is why i think this is such an exciting time for uh entrepreneurs and stuff like that like how familiar are you with the concept of drop shipping uh is that where you set up a page on uh cotton bureau and they send your t-shirts for you what i mean kind of (laughs) i guess (laughs) i guess kind of um so it's it's really kind of an interesting business model um, and one that really fits for right now. It's like it is a 21st century kind of solution to a lot of these problems. So it, it takes Tim Ferriss's concept of like outsourcing and delegating and stuff like that. But it really puts it into a, a an interesting and novel context. So and again, people are probably, you know, might be listening to this and just tearing their fucking hair out because I, you know, I don't really understand drop shipping all that much, but I, I get the basic concept. It's like drop shipping is essentially just a business model where you can, it, it enables you to test out the sales of products without spending a whole ton of money up front. Like imagine the old way, like let's say I was making um, shirts or something, right? I would have to, it's like, uh, oh, I'm going to buy my own screen printing press, you know, whatever. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of these, you know, Hanes shirts and I'm going to fucking run them through and all the ink and all the, or, or whatever screen printing takes. I don't, I don't think it's ink, <laughs> whatever screen printing is. I don't actually know. Um, but basically you have all this upfront cost and all this startup capital tied to starting your business like that. Well, now it doesn't really have to do that. You essentially make a contract with another company, like a company who already does these things, and you build an online store, you are doing the marketing to get people to buy it. Your supplier, though, the person you have a contract with, sorts out the inventory and ships the orders directly to the shoppers. So I don't actually need to have, I don't need to buy a warehouse now to have all this stuff. I don't need to have a big old facility to, to do flow roll. Right. You know what I mean? Or to even package floral or, or anything like that. It's like, I can make a contract now with another company who already has that stuff, will put it together for me and will ship it to my shopper. So I also am not creating tracking labels. I'm not doing, you know, whatever. I'm just entering a contract. So essentially, you don't have to pay. There's no upfront capital cost. You don't have to, you don't have to pay until, uh, or you don't have to pay the suppliers until the customers pay you for the product. So it's like, Basically, two things. Number one, it makes sorting out what your profitability is super easy, right? How much did I pay the supplier? How much did I collect from the buyer? Subtract them from one another, boom. Profit, right? Profit, yep. Super easy. (laughs) Step three, dot, dot, dot. Step four, profit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then the second thing is really this truly is, this is one of the reasons why we see entrepreneurship just skyrocketing in our generation. Look how easy it is now. 
Right. Like, I don't have to have a warehouse. I don't have to have a, a storefront. I don't have to have a brick and mortar anything. I can make a contract with someone and now we can make these products. I don't have to store anything at my house. You can literally do it out of a studio. Exactly. And it's accessible now. Before, it felt like you had to know someone or you had to have yes. a, a license or a, yep. a, a contract or a deal with someone. Or, you know, the restaurant supply stores here in town were never open to the public before, but now they are. So now you can buy your cool giant metal spoons if you want mm-hmm. to serve your roasted potatoes. But it's, uh, <laughs> but before you had to be an actual restaurant to actually purchase those things, you right. know? Yeah. So like accessibility is a new thing that is, uh, Nice. It's nice. It's a nice yeah. thing to have. Yeah. And and that's it's it really kind of shows the differences in methodologies between, you know, when uh when um the four hour work week was written and now, because now it's like, oh, that that concept is completely like not obsolete because Tim Fer- it's basically just the the first generation of this concept. But now we're we're past that. We're we're firing on all cylinders. Like um for instance, uh, you know what I think is a really interesting business model? Uh, have you been using uh, DoorDash or Postmates recently? No, I haven't. And actually, I don't know if this is true for Tucson, but uh, I know this is true for Phoenix. There's a bunch of places that are just called like Fire Tie or something like that. They don't really exist. Like, they, I mean, they exist in the in the technical definition sense, but they're not restaurants. They're not. You can't go get a table there. People figured out that with COVID and all this kind of stuff, there's never been a better time to be in just delivery food. So they open up a small area that's just multiple kitchens, no seating area, and they run three different or three or four or whatever different Postmates restaurants out of that one space. So you're now getting three to four different revenue streams off of different cuisines out of one space, paying the lease on one building. So it's like, man... You really can the, the the Internet of Things and the accessibility of things has really changed the way that people are not only buying stuff because it's that's obvious. Right. We were in the Amazon generation. We expect two day free shipping on everything. Right. 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 But also it's it's changing how th- people are selling stuff. And that's really interesting. And so <clears throat> there's just like way more ways to kind of automate. There's way more ways to kind of set yourself up in a different way. Like th- these are all good suggestions i think in terms of automation from tim ferris but it's like what's what's strange revisiting this book is that we're just so far beyond this now well it, it's like someone automated automation like they, <laughs> oh, they we're really through the looking glass now <laughs> i know i know but but in doing that it, they really sucked out the convenience of having someone else do the work for you mm-hmm. so like so yes it's easier to get shirts printed at wherever you need to get your shirts printed but you still have to do the work and design the shirt and mm-hmm. find the place to do it and upload it and and you still have to check in with them to make sure i mean it, yeah. i guess it is the same way but uh it, it still feels like automation is becoming uh a little bit of a trickery i feel Mm-hmm. in some aspects of business nowadays. Yeah. So uh, like one, I think if I were to uh, automate something like I was talking about uh, with social media, like you still have to sit down and curate your content and you still have to yeah. uh, upload it and write captions and find hashtags. Like you still have to do that work. It's easier to do it now and you can definitely get in a groove and knock things out easier as opposed to trying to figure out something every day, which definitely is time saving yeah and eliminates a lot of uh just time wasting but uh 
But at the same time, you have to be uh, up with trends. If a new trend pops up, you have to yeah to uh, well, pivot I mean, it, and uh, acclimate to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's just one of those <laughs> it's just one of those things where uh, how do you automate things like creativity? Well, this is my thinking on it. I feel like you know, living on the beach working four hours a week. Mm-hmm. I think for a creative doing the creative thing is the beach. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's it that's not the the lifestyle that they're escape or the the what the the act the actual creative work is the the life that they're trying to create. Right. It's like I'd rather be making movies every day or writing yeah. every day. Like that's the work I want to do. So it, it doesn't feel like a nine to five, mm-hmm. you know, life suck. It's a, a thing you want to do. And I feel like if you can find a position or a job or a, a skill set that you enjoy doing, that's going to become your, your living on the beach lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that that's really, and, and that's a fair kind of commentary on it is that really this this framework that he's laying out like Tim's business framework really lends itself more to like product based or productized service based businesses it it really doesn't make sense it like it only m- makes sense in the same like marketing and sales sort of framework but you have a business that like requires constant content creation or like customized content creation or, you know, freelance writing or something like that. It's like, how do you systematize, automate and and delegate those tasks? I don't think you can really, you know what I mean? It's like the work in and of itself is what you're doing, but I don't know. Right. So I, I think for, for me, I think the thing that I would like to be the passive income is the or the automated part is the finding funding for projects, mm-hmm. finding uh, scheduling crew, like doing all the mundane stuff that mm-hmm. you know takes you away from being a creative. The the finding locations and scheduling locations, like the logistics of everything, uh, can be a time suck. Uh, yeah, and you know I can you know make a movie all day every day, but you know who's going to watch it? How am I making money off of it? Yeah, that's the it- hard part. This might be a dumb question, but I'm not really familiar with the space. Like, is is uh, crowd what do they call crowdfunding? Uh, does that kind of automate? Um, it's like it kind of seems like it does and it doesn't, right? Does that automate fundraising for you or no? Because like these days, all these Kickstarter campaigns and stuff like that still require like, oh, let me shoot a professional video to show you why you should invest. You know, like it, it seems like that still is a it, maybe not as much as pitching meetings all over town, but it's it's still a, a little bit of a of a time sink in order to crowdfund. I don't know how I would put it, but it it definitely feels like an oversaturated market that is not automated at all. Mm-hmm. So there's something to the effect of you know thousands of people putting a film up on Kickstarter to get funded. Mm-hmm. And Tim Ferriss actually did a whole series on this or like a blog post or an email or something like that. Mm-hmm. He had some sort of water filter carafe wine thing. I don't remember what it was, but, <laughs> but he did what he does and he hacked it. And he's like, I've got an email list with X amount of people. I know 3% of this email list is going to respond. I need to email at least X amount of people to meet mm-hmm. my funding goal. Yeah. This is what I need to provide. This is like the bare minimum he had to do to make it work. But the 
the thing that made it easy for him though was that he had access to all these people and he already had a giant list to execute this thing properly mm-hmm. you know my email list right now is like 24 people i haven't even yeah. checked it in a while you know yeah i don't yeah. have three million people to say hey everybody i need to raise a million dollars yeah which then which then like if this many percent open it this many percent respond this many actual you know whatever. right right yeah it's like you just don't have to funnel basically right so I, I i don't think that crowdfunding is efficient for something like a four because it's an everyday thing yeah so if i were to yeah. post it on instagram or and facebook it's a post every day multiple times a day it's me private messaging people saying hey look at my campaign please support it mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's a full-time job doing a yeah. crowdfunding thing well and, and to that point right like i don't, I don't know it's there's a certain amount of that, especially, and I feel like this is the step that we're kind of picking apart the most, but it, I think that that also really shows you which parts of the book are still, you know, more relevant than others perhaps, but it's like, it's, it's really based on this idea of outsourcing tasks, right? Like, like here are, here's the list and any, and, and he breaks it down using the Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule, where he's like, okay, look, here's the 20% of stuff that drives 80% of the results. The rest you need to either get rid of or you um or you outsource it and automate it. But to that point it's like it, basically what you just said is that there has to be some scalability there already in your business otherwise it, it's not economically feasible or sustainable. Like you can't you can't actively just like you don't have the list to crowdfund like that. So how the fuck are you going to like, Oh no, okay, it's okay. Like he said to outsource it. So I'm just going to put it on a Kickstarter or call it good or, or put it on an email list. But it's like, well, then you would need like, let's say you need $5 million to make this movie. It's like, well, then you need all 24 of those people to really show up and spend big. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Please do that. <laughs> yeah, please do that. But yeah, I mean, it, it I don't know. That's one of those sections that I just felt like had kind of a lot of assumptions. Right. Well, how, how do you, how, how would you apply this four hour work week to a flow roll? Yeah. See, and I think the four hour work, that's why I think maybe you and I have just slightly deviated kind of, uh, uh, thoughts about this because, this model does kind of fit into like mine's a product. It's a very product based thing that would be, you know, kind of heavily marketed. And, and now with drop shipping, it's like that part would be easier. Right. So the idea is that I already have a niche product that's relatively inexpensive to test. Uh-huh. Right. Like that, that's, that's the jumping off point. Obviously it'll get more expensive the more we batch and it'll get more expensive if I have the bandwidth to be able to use more expensive resources and stuff like that. But, you know, right now we're staying at humble beginnings. So it's already a niche product. It's already um, relatively inexpensive to test. So then theoretically, if I was applying the, the, the Tim Ferriss four hour work week business model to it, essentially, if, uh, if I was, uh, if, if I was applying this business model, then I can create the product not in my house because what I do now is I buy all the ingredients and I combine them in the house, which is not only an expense of time, but is also an expense of my space and like all, all kinds of stuff. Right. Right. So 
that would be being done by by a company that I would have a contract with that would then drop ship directly to the customer. I wouldn't even have to like theoretically assuming I have the margins in order to do this. Right. So, again, that's a, that's another assumption that I already have the scale to do this. If I was to do this right off the jump right now, it's like, well, no, I can't. I don't have the margins. I'm, I'm not making any profit right now. I can't just jump right into paying somebody to do this. I need to do it myself, which is why I am doing it myself. Uh, but then theoretically, I get it drop shipped from them. And then I spend most of my time, like the 80-20 the rule and stuff like that, I would spend most of my time um, trying to get either either through marketing, trying to get more people to buy in like a sales funnel through individuals, meaning individuals buying my product through Instagram ads and stuff like that, or... Uh, and then failing that or doing that simultaneously, the other thing that I do is I try and get it to be sold in fitness stores, but with less importance of actually shipping it to the uh, a physical location, but more just on their online store, on their e-commerce store. Right. Uh, from there, it, you know, assume, again, assuming that there is enough of a client base and assuming that the marketing funnel is really working and stuff like that, well, then I don't really need to be tied to a job necessarily or anything like that. So then, you know, that kind of breaks more into the lifestyle of the new rich sort of thing. But it, the, the reason why that works is because this is a, a product very much in line with what he's saying in that I don't actually have to physically manufacture it. It's not proprietary stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, Anyone can put these ingredients together. I'm just the only one who's researching them and like making this, you know, signature blend and, and then pro- productizing it. But, you know, if you're doing something that uh, requires customization or re- requires, it's like, I, I just don't see how that model fits for everybody. If it's for me, I don't think it fits for everybody, though. I don't think it fits for everybody either. And I think uh, another thing that I had issue with the four hour uh, work week was it, it felt it feels like. It has to be a product you don't care about. Like you have, you like you don't care. Like it seems like the products that he was putting out there, his name wasn't attached to it. Mm-hmm. It was like its own little thing that was doing its own little thing out and wherever it was doing whatever it was doing. Yeah, it wasn't Tim Ferriss's supplement. It wasn't right. Tim yeah. Ferriss's. You know. Yeah, uh, and I think that's the difference between I, what I think you're trying to do with Floral and what I'm trying to do with Elephant Scout. Mm-hmm. It's like we need to put names attached to it, and they need to be a quality product because yep. we have, you know, values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great call out. That's a great call out. Like I, I didn't actually even consider it that way, but it's like, yeah, ultimately what I'm trying to do is like, I'm, I'm trying to build something here that I actually want to continue to be a part of. I'm not trying to sell. And that, and that was sort of the thing that you see all these examples. Like what did you see? And, and, this is probably, again, just something that like only I was looking at. But immediately when COVID kind of locked us down and actually closed gyms, all of a sudden fitness equipment was selling like crazy on Amazon. Right. Right. And there are all these companies that make resistance bands. Tons of them. Tons of them. Like it wasn't there's not just a couple brands. And even I think some of the brands are because they're the exact same products. So I'm pretty sure some of the brands are the same company, just like they all make, they just name them different things so that that way they have more of a reach or I I don't know. I I don't, that part, I haven't really worked out why that makes sense, Uh but uh, whatever. It's not of me to understand that. Right. But the thing there was basically that you sell the product for $20. It costs $2 to make. That's it. You know, it's like, it's like, that's basically the, the, the ends and goal, but 
to me, that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like use, this is more to work towards my, like what I think is my life's work, which is, you know, optimizing it. Like we've, we've talked about this for, for so long, right? It's like, this is more in line with my, my life's work about like optimizing the human experience and athleticism and all this kind of stuff. It's, it isn't just about, it sounds super corny for me to say, but it's like, it's not just about turning a profit. So if I make a shit product just because it sells enough, you know, whatever, it's like, well, that doesn't really meet my goals that I'm making. Right. So it, I I guess I understand the idea because it's like, that's how, that's, that's how you get yourself to financial, um, freedom. You know what I mean? Like freedom. Yeah. Is is that what I'm trying to say? I think so. Yeah. That's how you get yourself to like not depending on a nine to five job or something to, to be paid and to do whatever. But that and your specific goals and your dreams about like what you're creating, the legacy that you're leaving and all this kind of stuff. It's like, those are two different kind of things. Right. They are definitely two different things. And I don't know, I guess there's some soulless, heartless people out there that don't care about their legacy. Well, to be fair, uh, just, just a couple years ago, I probably would have wanted to, uh, like I was more focused on turning a buck than, you know, what, what I was doing with my life or something like that. I've really kind of only gotten these sensitivities recently. I was, but that's because I was more coming from a place of me feeling like, Oh, I fucked up, you know, like I was supposed to be this and now I'm not. And now I'm in a desperation. Like I was, I had like a famine mindset that I was just like, I need to get money. I need to get money. Whereas I just kind of don't feel that. Um, and I think I've talked about them before. There's this uh, production company called Asylum Films mm-hmm. where they make uh, knockoffs of big blockbusters. I don't know if they still do it. I'm sure they do. But they make like a film a month for X amount of dollars and they always make a profit back with foreign sales. And they're Oh, sure. They, they used to do better when video stores were around and they would do, uh, you know, like Transmorphers when Transformers came out. <laughs> so people go to like Blockbuster and they would rent Transmorphers thinking it was Transformers. Because they were aligned their releases with the release of these blockbusters in theaters. And it was really kind of a shady practice, but they were rocking it for a long time and they were making profits yeah. on all their movies because they were doing these. It was, I thought it was shady. It's a shady mm-hmm. tactic to really trick people into purchasing their product. And so uh, those are the types of people that I think that are not aware of what they're doing. They're aware of what they're doing and they just don't care. Yeah, I actually, so I looked them up, I looked up Asylum Films, and I actually see exactly what you're talking about. Like, some titles, like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Atlantic Rim. Right. You know? uh, Battleship uh, or... Yeah, Triassic World. Right. It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, it's like, they're basically uh, using the popularity of these other things to make a quick buck. Battle of Los Angeles instead of Battle Los Angeles. The Martian land, not just the Martian. And it's like the cover art even looks the same. Right. This is crazy. I Wow, this is, yeah. So I don't know if they're still making them, but they also did, um, the big ones The big ones they did recently were the um, Sharknado movies. They did like all five of them. Mm, oh, those were them. Yeah, they did Sharknado. Oh, well, they definitely... The Fast and the Fierce. Uh, we should talk about that at some point. We- <laughs> <laughs> They've got nine of those. Oh, this is interesting. Um, uh, 
this is uh it's interesting that the wikipedia article tells you which movie it's based on oh really yeah so like uh so like i'm reading here they have the da vinci treasure based on the da vinci code like pirates of treasure island it's pirates of the caribbean like this is wild that they actually have like a one-to-one kind of relationship here but it looks like they made a movie they um they're still making movies triassic Uh, hunt uh, is it's crazy that's crazy and then ape versus monster which uh is very pertinent to what we were just talking about. Right. But I, I think this is the four hour work week model of filmmaking. Mm, it's, mm-hmm. you know, what can we do to really pounce on things? And the thing that is automated is their marketing. It's already done for them because it's, they're releasing product projects that align with big marketing schemes going on at the mm-hmm. same time. And so it's like, they're, yeah, they're piggybacking off of something else, but it just feels gross to me. Yeah, it's, yeah, again, it's like, I guess if they just wanted to make money making movies, then I guess this accomplishes the goal. Like, if that's the goal, then, you know, it is what it is. But if your goal was to actually make movies that people really love or something like that, it's like, I I don't really see how this fits the, I guess it, but maybe this falls into that, that, you know, chapter about definitions in four hour work week. Like, they've redefined it such that this is what they Right. I mean, these, this is their goals. I guess we shouldn't trash on it too much, but yeah, no, but I, I mean, I they're do, still making plenty more movies than I ever have. So right. same here. But I think the thing that I'm trying to say is that I feel like, uh, completely automating a product without your involvement in it is the asylum of movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, you're not really associated with it. There's no like care about it and you probably should care about it because yeah, that's, that's how you end up with poison and supplements. <laughs> yeah, my God, what a what a nightmare that would be. So let me ask you this. Let me let me flip it a little bit. Did, was there anything that you found that you really liked about the four hour work week? Oh, I know I sound like I'm a hater throughout this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but there's uh, just some things that I really. Well, uh, I I like the the theory behind it all. I, I don't think I like the way it was framed, but I like a lot of the theories inside of this four-hour work week. I like the theory of you know defining what your goals are, but actually being real and true to yourself as to what mm-hmm. is your re- yeah. dream retirement. What is yeah. your you know what are you happy doing? What are you not happy doing? Like really mm-hmm. learning to value your time and where do you want to spend your time for the rest of your life. I like that theory behind it. Yeah, I yeah. like the idea of eliminating all the unnecessary malarkey, you know, uh, I think automating automation just feels weird to me. I feel like it, it takes the life out of everything, especially as a creative, there's no Mm. life in automation, but there still needs to be some sort of participation by an actual human being doing something to really execute some tasks in this creative field that I'm trying to work in. But I, I like the idea of streamlining everything really, uh, setting goals and and a, and a straightforward path to get to those goals, and I feel like that's what automation would be. The elimination process would be for a creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else was there? 
I gotta say the thing that I like, and I think that this is just basically the, the theme of the book. It's not because it kind of goes into like tactical application and then even like some little philosophy and stuff like that. But I, I think ultimately the thing that I like most about it is just the, I, the, the like idea behind it, which is that don't, work just to make money which i know sounds counterintuitive because that's basically what he's doing but he's doing it specifically i think because i don't know what the the end like maybe it's maybe i understand it more coming from tim ferris than i do from asylum films because i know what he's doing with it you see what i'm saying it's like i don't actually know what they're doing with this but that's just because i'm not privy to you know what goes on in their business as i shouldn't be because who cares what i think right but um but you know, what Tim Ferriss is basically positing is like, don't just work for money, work with a specific purpose to, uh, to finance your goals or to finance whatever you want in life, to finance vacations, to finance whatever. Now that makes the assumption that you're not working towards something that you actually like want out of the work itself, which is kind of more the case with you. Like it's like you want to, and kind of the case with me in, uh, in, in flow roll. Like it's like the work in and of itself is the process that we're trying to engage in. It's like, you want to be a filmmaker, you want to make movies. So it's like, that's what you want to do. But I do like the idea of basically, you know, for maybe people who don't immediately have that concept or, you know, whatever. It's like, I do like the idea that you're not just, you know, oh, I'm just working a job just to fill in things in the resume and I'm going to go from level one to a level two to a level three. It's like, no, you're being intentional about, you know, what do you want out of life? And uh, like, you're going to work to just make the money. And so from that perspective, it kind of makes the automate automation and the outsourcing and everything kind of makes sense because it's like, well, Tim just wants to spend a lot of time traveling and see that's kind of the difference. I think that's the difference between where you're coming from and where Tim's coming from, because Tim is using a system that he already knows how to create in order to finance his ability to travel. The alternative, if it was more of a Chris Scott thing is like, Oh, I want to make a YouTube series or I want to make a, you know, documentary series about me traveling. Therein the work becomes the thing that you want to do. They're one and the same, right? Right. right. He's taking a different tact in this, which is basically like, well, I have to make money. Here's how I can automate it and here's how I can like basically make money that'll finance my desire to travel. So, it's a different sort of application. I see the relevance in both. I guess I, I can't say which one, like, is one right or wrong or something like that. I have no idea. And, and, you know, I guess it just matters to you. But I think basically what you and I are kind of coming around to saying is that if you find yourself in a place where the actual work of it is what you're trying to get out of it, then this isn't really the the model for you. Um, but if you're trying to just means to an end to live a different kind of lifestyle or something, well then yeah, this model is applicable. Right. Yeah. I I guess uh, while researching for this podcast, I did see a lot of uh, YouTube (laughs) vlog posts about this four hour work week series. I don't know if you saw any of these, but it, uh, a lot of them, these people were depressed uh, executing these tactics. Really? Like they found themselves in a state of depression. Yeah. They were living in Bali and doing all this stuff. It, It was like, like, like three to like three out of the four videos I found were about, people being depressed about it. And I think it was Jeez. the the thing you're talking about. It's like what Tim Ferriss wants us to travel everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not best for you. I right. I know a lot of people that want to move to California. Like I had a friend 
whose wife <laughs> like, I want to move to San Diego because that's the only place they ever vacationed was San Diego. Hmm. And I thought, that's weird. That's a weird thing to do. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of San Diego. I think, I don't know. I'm not a beach person. You're not a beach person. Okay. I'm not a beach person. I don't I don't get San Diego. It's too expensive. Well, clearly I'm a beach person because I'm in Hawaii right now. I know. See that lay around your neck. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do think there's this thing with travel where I think people get vacation highs. Mm-hmm. And they ride a high and they get this vision in their head that this is what it's like all the time. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that people have that high because they kind of they get away from the stress of it all, the having to work and bills and living and cooking, taking care of yourself. It's like you're on vacation. You're letting all that go. And I feel like moving to some place where you just let it all, it, it's not real. Yeah. I, that's, that's sort of my thing with living, like the idea of living in Hawaii, right? It's like, well, no, you're just, you love the vacation. You don't love the actual practice of being there every day, making a living and doing all that kind of stuff. It's like, that's totally different. Yeah, some people do, and I understand that. But I, I feel like the there's a there's a trap in the idea that I want to travel six months out of the year. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel like it's not for everybody. I feel like a lot of people can do it, but it's not for everybody. Hmm. And I do think the thing to really focus on in the four hour work week is finding what makes you happy and figuring that out and focusing on that and making that your work week as opposed to working for someone else doing a job you're not a big fan of man i i don't think i could have said it any better than that (laughs) that that really kind of uh sums it up in a really really great way and i have to agree and i think that this um you know i i I give myself a lot of grief where i'm i'm constantly like thinking like why didn't i do this earlier why am i so far behind all that kind of stuff it is what it is but uh like i need to kind of get rid of that that eliminate it I need to eliminate it or using borrowing a phrase from Chris Scott. I need to uh, break up with that. Get a idea. break up with that. Yeah. But um, I think maybe, yeah, to, to jump off of what you're saying, I, I think that that just goes to show you that maybe the most important work that you can be doing, at least initially, is that kind of like deep inner work to figure out what makes you happy and what you'd be interested in dedicating your life to, or maybe not, or, you know, whatever, just like things like that. Like maybe that's the, the important work to do. Um, before you jump off on any of these like kind of self-help like tactic kind of books. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Don't do anything shady and automated. <laughs> shady and automated. I'm now I'm just going to do automated companies. I'm just going to like sell widgets or something and just pump uh, them out through a machine. Great. Tell Chris to screw off. All right. Uh, anything to plug my friend? Uh, just check out this uh, trailer for the scripted podcast, Tucson heat. It should be available wherever podcasts are found or go to elephantscout.com slash podcast for more information. Perfect. All right. As with me, just about as always, uh, I am at Atish Mazish on social media. That is my personal. Uh, I have the, uh, as I announced last week, I have the uh, ramen profitable um, reading list, the first stack done, the January stack. So we've got some reviews coming. We've got some interesting stuff. Uh, so hopefully that will uh, be up for you guys. Um, also, hopefully, as, as I mentioned on the last episode, uh, I had a, a kind of interesting impromptu meeting with a, an influencer. So uh, A, maybe it'd be interesting to get 
her on the podcast in general, but B, uh, I'm hoping that she shows me the uh, finer points of social media so I can stop being such a schlub. So you can look out for that hopefully in the future. But till then, uh, catch us next time on Ramen Profitable. <laughs>